1: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to changing minds and you have turned into a breakdown session. And this is where I talk about the news and the big ideas behind those events that impact you. And I break down and analyze highlights from the 180 cast interviews and listener comments and debunk conventional wisdom when it runs up against the facts. So we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to talk about, um, Trump's, uh, the Trump administration defunding Planned Parenthood, supposedly. We are going to talk about the last interview I did with, uh, Pastor John Speed, who's also the co producer of Babies Are Murdered Here. Um, that stirred up a lot of mm, controversy a little bit. So I'm excited to talk about that and play some sound bites for you. And then we are also going to talk, of course, for the Woke of the Week, we're going to talk about the 1619 Project and white privilege. Did you know, not to toot my own horn here, but just a little bit to toot my own horn, I called this. I saw this coming over a year ago, and I will talk about that. All right. So let's get started with the top story, or what I consider the top story, which is that uh, Planned Parenthood has decided to pull out from Title X funding um, because they are unwilling, of course, to give up abortion because abortion is about a quarter of the revenue that Planned Parenthood brings in. So, I mean, that's 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 good. Uh, a lot of people are saying on social media especially that Planned Parenthood has been quote-unquote defunded. You know, you've seen this hashtag for years and years, hashtag defund Planned Parenthood, and a lot of people think that because Planned Parenthood is pulled out of Title X, that that means that uh, Planned Parenthood is finally defunded. That's actually not the case, and I'm going to explain really quickly why that's not true. So I uh, wrote a Twitter thread about this recently. What you really need to know is that Well, I'll just start with the bottom line. The bottom line is that Title X is only a small fraction of the money that Planned Parenthood receives from the federal government. Um, Most of the money that they get is actually from Medicaid. So before you answer, but wait, what about the Hyde Amendment, which says that the federal government can't fund abortion? Just think about it this way. It's really just a slush fund. It's really about accounting trickery and moving your budget a little bit because you're getting money from the federal government. So that means you can move your other funds to fund your abortion operations. Um, so as long as the federal government is funding the states for Medicaid, then quote unquote state funding for abortion through Medicaid is, you know, it's just a matter of rearranging, rearranging budgets. So it, it, a lot of people say like, um, You know, I've written about this too that Oregon is basically giving out free elective abortions through Medicaid. Well, even if you don't live in Oregon and you live in another state that doesn't do that, that state is still getting money from Medicaid and they're still probably sending money. Well, they are sending money to Planned Parenthood via the clients that go there for services and are reimbursed, and then Planned Parenthood is reimbursed through Medicaid because those clients qualify for Medicaid. Okay, so Planned Parenthood gets about $60 million from Title 10 a year, which is about 10.6% of the quote-unquote government health services reimbursements and grants uh, line item if you look at the Planned Parenthood 2017-2018 report. Um, So that means that 89.4% is actually from other sources. And of course, as I said, the biggest of that is Medicaid reimbursement. So also note that you know upwards of sixty percent of Planned Parenthood's clients are accessing their services through Medicaid or Title X. So Planned Parenthood is highly, highly dependent on Medicaid, and unless you are willing to stop giving Medicaid dollars to facilities that fund abortion, Then you have not defunded Planned Parenthood, or the other two thirds of abortion clinics that are under some other name. You know, we say defund PP, and PP really gets you know um, the brunt of the controversy and the backlash. But they they're only performing about a third of all the abortions in the U.S. There's a whole other two thirds of you know abortion clinics that are run by other companies that you know, 66% of abortions are happening there too. So just something to keep in mind. Moving on. By the way, if you, have question, if, you, if you have thoughts on how to actually defund Planned Parenthood or how realistic you think that is and what steps need to be taken to actually defund Planned Parenthood or whether you think we shouldn't defund Planned Parenthood at all and this really isn't that big of a deal, you can call at 323-999-1802. Okay, I am very excited to move into the highlights from the interview from episode 22, which is my interview with Pastor John Speed, as I mentioned earlier. So I am going to play a couple sound bites for
0: you. And we went from that that sort of local issue about the gospel when some of the leaders of the pro-life movement got wind of what we were doing They began to oppose us, mainly on Facebook, regarding the idea of preaching at the clinics, calling abortion murder, talking about abortion being sin. And so it just confirmed what I learned locally here in Syracuse that this is something that didn't come from them, it came from sort of the national level of various organizations. We were just trying to mobilize Christians, churches, local churches, to go out to the clinics to preach the gospel and the opposition that we got was, I don't know what word to use, it was overwhelming, monumental, it was a lot of opposition.
1: So, most people would think of the pro-life movement as primarily composed of Christians. You know, there's some Mormons and, and Jews, you know, Ben Shapiro is, is probably the most prominent among them. Um, but this is, this is a movement by religious people, mostly Christians, um that that run the the crisis pregnancy centers and the stork buses and um you know that are are prominent leaders of the pro life movement so they're they're christians and catholics and when i spoke with with pastor john speed i i didn't know this going into the interview really that national or that are um, 40 days for life had such a big problem with people standing outside of the death mills trying to preach the gospel to these women going in and saying, please don't murder your children. Um, you know, that that's a sin, but there's grace here for you. Like, Christ died for sinners, and please don't do this. And what what is the problem with that exactly? What's the problem with that? Well, when I talked to him, I said, well, why, why do they have such a problem with this? And it's, oh, you're intimidating the women who are going in. You're, you're pushing them away because you're being too in their face. Too in their face with the gospel. Uh-huh. And I asked, what, 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 was it a problem with the language that you were using? It wasn't, you know, was it not necessarily the problem that you were standing out there preaching in the gospel? You know, was it? Was it that you were calling abortion murder and he's murder and he said, well, it was both, you know, so it's it's not just that you're calling abortion what it is. It's the fact that you're you're trying to stand out there saying, hey, you know, um, if if you don't repent, then you're going to be punished for this. When you die, you are not going to get the reward that you think is coming to you. And you need to come to Jesus and fall on your knees and say, I, I I've. I've sinned against you and accept the grace that comes from Christ and for him, covering, um, for him covering our sins with his blood. And 40 Days for Life and National Right to Life and these big organizations have a problem with that. So I think we really need to examine where we're putting our money. <laughs> um, are we putting our money with, with organizations As Christians, I mean, of course, I'm speaking from this as a Christian. And if you're a Christian, I hope that you're thinking about this too, is are you giving money thinking that you're doing a good thing, but really you're giving money to people who are actually vehemently opposing the preaching of the gospel to people who desperately need it and to people who are out there saying, please don't kill your children and i think this plays into this larger idea that has been promoted on, especially on the national level that we are winning the fight against abortion that it's just a matter of time before the abortion the abortion regime collapses and everybody sort of acknowledges that uh, abortion is is a great evil without us even saying that it's a great evil but everybody's just going to acknowledge that we We shouldn't have abortion anymore. And it's just going to happen any day now if we just get a few more people on the Supreme Court and look at all these heartbeat heartbeat bills being passed. And and that's something that was an interesting discussion that I had with um, Pastor Speed as well. Um, And I'm going to play a soundbite really quick about the heartbeat bills because what he had to say was really interesting. And it's not something that you are going to hear on the national sites. I don't, I've never seen this perspective on site News. I haven't seen it from Life Site or Live Action or any of these uh, major pro-life publications.
0: And so these heartbeat bills, just to use one example, and there are, there are others, you know, the, what they are, I think what they're calculated to do, and this may sound very negative, mm-hmm. but uh I think what they're calculated to do is to throw sort of a uh crumb to the pro life voter. And like they say, virtue
1: hey. signaling.
0: Virtue sig- that's it. Virtue signaling. Hey look, we're we're doing something to try to end abortion. So look at these heartbeat bills. Nobody stops to think whether or not a single baby has been uh rescued by that.
1: And he talks in the interview a little bit about why heartbeat bills fail just on a practical level to actually save the children that they're supposedly supposed to protect. And that goes beyond the point that I have brought up in the past, which is that these heartbeat bills include provisions that say, basically, that this whole bill is null and void because we have to submit to the quote unquote law of the land, which is the um, decisions, the abortion precedent from the Supreme Court. So until Roe v. Wade and Planned Planned Parenthood versus Casey and all the other abortion precedent is overturned um, and and states are quote-unquote now freed to do what they want in terms of regulating abortion, then the heartbeat bill will go into effect right you really just have to read these bills these bills are not that long and they're very easy to understand so i really encourage everyone no matter how old you are if you are 8 years old you can you can understand most of this bill okay um or or what you think your expertise is in a lot of these laws that are being passed, you can understand most of what's going on and you're going to be leagues ahead of a lot of the journalists that are claiming to inform you about what's going on here, okay? So really, heartbeat bills do nothing. And I do believe that they are virtue signaling. I think Pastor Speed is is correct there that it's okay to pass a heartbeat bill because everybody knows we can nod that nothing is going to happen nothing's going to happen i mean Planned Parenthood is building new clinics in places um i think it was Alabama that i saw where these these extremely limiting bills are supposed to quote-unquote stop abortion right it's just virtue signaling nothing is getting done so we're really just spinning our wheels here with the pro-life movement and um You know, Pastor Speed said something really interesting in that respect at the end of the interview, which, you know, I'm just going to save that for you to go listen to it yourself and then come back and give me your thoughts at 323-999-1802. I'm just going to leave off this segment with one more soundbite that I think is very powerful um, on this issue.
0: We claim we serve a God that took a shepherd boy and dropped a giant with a stone. That's the God that we serve, a God who's powerful if we will follow his principles. They're willing to abandon that for the sake of numbers. They need to get back to the God of the Bible who can drop this Goliath to its knees through simple proclamation of the truth.
1: You know, you you often hear from pastors who remind us, and it's a great thing that they remind us, that a lot of times we act one way at church and then act another way as soon as we get out. But it's not just about behavior where I think that there's a disconnect a lot of the time. It's not just about whether you're snapping at your spouse or not, or whether you're um, not raising your voice with your kids unnecessarily. It's about what your worldview is. Is your worldview actually influenced by the Bible? And what I mean by that is, is your worldview based on biblical truth? Because if it is based on biblical truth, this is not an argument. This is not an argument. Absolutely, the word of God is powerful, sharper than any double edged sword, right? That's what the Bible says. So, do we believe in the power of the gospel to change lives, to not just stop women from going into the clinic, quote unquote clinic, to, to murder their preborn children? Do we believe that it can save you eternally? that it can change your life from that point forward and your children's lives to not just save them for this life, but, to, but to, to be able to raise them in the truth so that their life is lived for the kingdom of God and that when they die, they're going to be with the Lord too. So I think that that's another thing, of course, to think about. I know I say that a lot, but this, this whole podcast is about thinking. You know, that's that's the way that I think of it. And I just saw yesterday that National Right to Life is publicly opposing a bill that virtually, quote unquote, bans abortion in Tennessee. Like I said, it doesn't really ban abortion, but that's the, quote unquote, radical nature of the bill. And they said, we don't want to do this because it, quote, makes us look foolish and I don't want to look foolish. Yeah. Yeah, banning abortion will make you look foolish. Oh, heaven forbid that you look foolish when you're trying to save three-quarter of a 1000000 preborn lives every single year. When children are dying every day. Heaven forbid you look a little bit foolish to the secular world. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 has some things to say about that, says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, and that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Just saying words outside of an abortion mill might seem really weak. It might seem, even to somebody who doesn't believe biblical truth, to be counterproductive. It might seem foolish, but those words are God's truth, and God's truth is powerful. And again, 1 Corinthians one eighteen: the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, are we going to be despised and called foolish for proclaiming God's truth about you know the image bearers of God in the womb, that our culture has said it's okay. It's okay to murder. It's it's actually your right. It's your right to destroy those lives. Or are we going to conform to the world's ideas? Moving on. Again, if you disagree with me, you can call at 323-999-1802. Okay. Time to talk about the Woke of the Week, which is New York Times 1619 project. First, let me start off by saying we should all not just say this, but really, really, truly acknowledge this on a deep level. The evil that is slavery. And I think it is important that we learn about slavery and the details of the evil that pervaded the South in the United States. We should, we should have an appreciation for the depth of that immorality, that wickedness, and how it permeated the whole culture, how it rotted the culture, how it got to the point where, you know, John C. Calh- Calhoun was defending it as a, quote-unquote, positive good. Okay? I, we should look at how evil institutions build and maintain themselves and come away with a deeper understanding of how wicked humans can be, period. Not just white people, not just black people, not just brown people, not just Americans, not just Europeans, not just Africans, everybody. It is fundamental to the human condition, the unregenerate human condition, that we are capable of great wickedness. And not just that, but how the people around those people who are, you know, supposedly the perpetrators can be blind to that and can be complicit with it. And I'm going to come back to that, um, when we, we do the debunking junk wisdom segment, but I will start off by giving credit where it's due, even though I think the underlying premise of this essay is not great. And this, this is what J- Jamal Bowie says early on in, in his essay for the 1619 Project. He says, But plantations didn't just produce goods, they produced ideas, too. And slave laborers developed an understanding of the society in which they lived. The people who enslaved them, likewise, constructed elaborate sets of beliefs, customs, and ideologies meant to justify their positions in this economic and social hierarchy. Those ideas permeated the entire South, taking deepest root in places where slavery was most entrenched. Think about that, because I think that that is true. It's not just about people who were denying the rights of other people and enslaving them. There was an entire system that was built around this and ideologies that were built explicitly to justify this horrible thing. And I also want to read another quote from that essay, which I, I think is important to take note of as well. And it's the government um, that John C. Calhoun envisioned would protect, quote unquote, liberty, not the liberty of the citizen, but the liberty of the master, the liberty of those who claimed a right to property and a position at the top of the racial and economic hierarchy. This liberty, he stated, was a reward to be earned, not a blessing to be gratuitously lavished on all alike, a reward, a reward reserved for the intelligent, the patriotic, the virtuous, and deserving, and not a boon to be bestowed on people too ignorant, degraded, and vicious to be capable either of appreciating or of enjoying it. <clears throat> Does that sound familiar in any way to any sort of institution that we have going on here today? Because I think it does. So back to the whole idea behind the 1619 Project. And like I mentioned earlier, I saw this coming over a year ago, and I wrote an article about it. And I was slandered basically as a white supremacist for that article. And I'm feeling just a little bit vindicated. Just a little bit, just a little bit. So the 1619 Project is a major initiative from the New York Times observing the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. I mean, the consequences of slavery were, were wide reaching. I mean, you can just think of how many people died during the Civil War which is like eight times the percentage of people that died during World War II. It's, it's a lot of people. But is, it, is 1619 our true founding? Is, is our entire country based on the institution of slavery? Do we owe everything to slavery? No, no, we do not. But this is an idea that the New York Times is, is going to push because they are coming at it from a very specific ideology And it is neo-Marxist, and more specifically, this is about privilege theory. This is about white privilege, which basically says that there's an oppressing class, and there's an oppressor class. I'm sorry, there's an oppressed class, right? And then there are oppressors, and then there's a system of oppression. And in that system... Whites are the oppressors just by nature of the fact that they're white and by nature of the fact that they are participating in the quote unquote system of oppression. Guess what that system is? Capitalism. Yep. It is explicitly noted in the neo-Marxist literature by these academics, that capitalism is the problem. And if you're participating in capitalism as a white person, then you are partaking in unearned advantages. And by nature of the fact that you are partaking in unearned advantages, you are stepping on somebody else's neck to get to where you are. You are actually oppressing somebody else by nature of the fact that you are being successful, that you are participating in the system. So this essay from Matthew Desmond, I think, really illustrates it, um, the fact that I'm right about this, that I was right about this in 2018, in the spring of 2018. He says, in order to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the plantation. Okay, So he spends like 1,200 words describing the quote-unquote brutality of capitalism he says, when Americans declare that we live in a capitalist society, what they're often defending is our nation's peculiar, peculiarly brutal economy, quote-unquote low-road capitalism. And low-road capitalism is a society that, quote-unquote, goes low, where wages are depressed as businesses compete over the price, not the quality of goods. So, un- so-called unskilled Workers are typically incentivized through punishments, not promotions. Inequality reigns and poverty spreads. So that is apparently the capitalism that you're participating in right now. It's a capitalism (laughs) in which nobody works on the quality of goods. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So let's think about this for just a little bit. The basis of the free market is the ability to sell your own labor. You have something to sell. You have something to contribute. And that is your work. This isn't about you being enslaved or oppressed in some way by nature of the fact that you are working for somebody. You have chosen to sell your labor. You are contracting your labor to somebody else and in return being compensated for it. Slavery is antithetical to the free market system. So it is not capitalism. You can call it something else. I mean, you can say that It's capitalism in the very, very strict sense, which nobody really uses outside of academia, that, you know, it's the the accumulation of capital so as to produce a greater amount of wealth. Um, You know, money produces more money, but you can't call it a free market system. And that's really what these people are talking about. They're talking about the entire economy that we have right now, where people sell goods and services and they sell their labor. Okay, this is idiotic to think that capitalism is all about pushing prices down instead of quality up. It's both, and it should be both. I mean, is this—is Matthew Desmond not ever chit-chatting with his colleagues on his iPhone X, which last time I checked is better than a rotary phone? But you know, the system, it's just so oppressive. And so he goes on in this essay to talk about the plantations and about the very elaborate... Um, systems of accounting and of management that were set up to manage these massive plantations where thousands and thousands of enslaved people were working the fields, picking cotton, and that it, it, it was absolutely sophisticated like nothing that had come before it because it was a huge, huge operation. Okay, the fact that an operation is huge doesn't mean it's capitalism, And I know that a lot of times on the left, there's a tendency to conflate big business with capitalism. Yeah, it was a big business. Cotton was a huge business in the South. That doesn't mean it is part of the free market or much less the foundation of the free market that you and I participate in today. (sighs) Okay, so this is the the part that, that really got me. Um, he says that, hold on, let me find my place. When an accountant depreciates an asset to save on taxes, or when a mid-level manager spends an afternoon filling in rows and columns on an Excel spreadsheet, they are repeating business procedures whose roots twist back to slave labor camps. And yet, despite this, quote, slavery plays almost no role in histories of management. You know, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Histories of management, you should look at You should look at those things. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a a good thing to learn from our history and how techniques were employed to keep people oppressed. Absolutely, 100% a good thing. But the whole idea behind this article is to taint today's free markets with the horrors of slavery. It's to make it feel icky, like it's still totally unjust because it supposedly grew directly out of slavery. Which, slavery, again, had a huge impact. But is our whole economy still based on slavery? No. No, it absolutely is not. Everybody has been lifted up by capitalism. By this idea that you can sell your own labor in exchange for compensation, and that people can compete over goods and services to provide the best and lowest priced goods and services to clients and customers I mean this is the same system that cut poverty like in half worldwide just in the last what hundred years or less, and we 're supposed to believe that this, according to the essay, contains quote dominant and recessive genes from slavery so so really they're starting from the position that oh no this is this is absolutely the foundation of capitalism today. And really, we're only arguing over the the little things around the side and, and whether one thing is a little bit more important than another thing. It's, you know, our DNA is slavery. We're just arguing over the dominant and recessive genes. This is absolutely based in white privilege theory. I have an article about it, which I will link to, and it's called the theory of white privilege leads to socialism, and I basically take the reader step by step through how this, uh, where this ideology started, and how it um, ties into intersectionality, and ultimately what it means for if you're an, an adherent to white privilege theory, how you think about capitalism and how you think about. America as a whole, and then I, I did a follow up article almost exactly a year ago where I talk about whether I talk about uh, whether white privilege theory paves the way for South Africa style property compensation confiscation in the United States. And so, if you're curious, you can take a look at that as well because I think that there is a pretty good case to be made that if we continue to embrace white privilege theory as the the truth that we're all supposed to go with. I mean, we can't call it objective truth because postmodernists, neo-Marxists don't believe in objective truth. But if that's the the system that that we're believing in, then it's really only a matter of time. Moving on. Okay. Last segment. Um, I want to revisit the abortion topic and as i mentioned when we were talking about the 1619 project there are some quotes in there that i think apply very well to the institution of abortion today and how we can be so blind to the wickedness that is happening because it's just banal Right. It's just abortion just happens every day. Like everybody knows somebody or at least has met somebody who has had an abortion. Um, Something like I think it's between 13. I mean, the the statistics are a little bit a little bit vague sometimes, but at least about 15 percent of pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion. I've heard estimates as high as as 25%, but it's at least 15% of pregnancies in the U.S. and in abortion. Okay, so it's just banal at this point. And I'm sure that if you lived in the South in, you know, 1835, that it was the same way. That's just part of your life. You just see it all the time. And a lot of people say... They really deny that this is, that abortion is like slavery. I mean, they'll use it. A lot of pro lifers will, will use slavery when it, it suits them to make an argument against abortion advocates and saying, oh, you know, like a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's my body, my choice. I can just do what I want. And, and you, you counter that and say, well, you know, slaveholders say, well, it's my slave, my choice. I can just do what I want. Right. You know, you can't tell somebody else to do somebody else what to do with their body. You can't tell, you know, another person that they can't own slaves. Um, But then when it comes to whether we think that the people who are committing abortions, especially. And no, I'm not talking about the abortionists. I'm talking about the women who contract with the abortionists to have their child killed. When it comes to that, it's like, no, 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 they're not guilty. We all think that the, the slave owners, all the slaveholders and the people who participated in that system way back when, we all believe that they're, that that was totally evil, and that they should, should be they should have been held accountable for their actions, right? But we don't believe it about women who commit abortions. And I really think that that stems from... Not hearing abortive women in their own words. Not hearing what they actually say about what they're going to do and what they have done. And how they think about it. Especially when they're confronted and saying, hey, please don't murder your child. Or, you did murder your child, but hey, if you repent, there's grace for you through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read you a few things. Um, I have paraphrased them um, to sort of protect where these came from, because I don't want to reveal the source and have people sort of outed in that respect. But I'm, I'm going to read you some some paraphrases, especially since these are from these are given by people who do um, minister to abortive women online. Um, under, under aliases, but I'm just going to read you a few things. And just tell me what you think at 323 One woman says, I'm learning to accept the energy of my babies and the best way to remember them is on my skin. I'm so grateful I can create life and their energy makes me a stronger person. I do know I'm a mother and I'll always have a place especially for them on my skin. I've scheduled my abortion. This is another woman. I've scheduled my abortion. I've never wanted any children, and this is my fourth abortion. I plan on getting another tattoo to remember this baby. I've already been lighting candles daily to celebrate the life. Any of you want to share what you did to memorialize the life you aborted? Third woman, I'm going in for my memorial tattoo tomorrow. It'll be a bird. A song I've been listening to a while going through this is what inspired me to get it. It's cute and pretty and small. I don't think it shouts I had an abortion or anything. Another woman. I want my tattoo to be really meaningful. So I was thinking of doing a clock. And the time will represent how many weeks pregnant I was when I get the abortion. You know, like, the problem wasn't you. The time just wasn't right. Here's another one. My memorial tattoo is on my thigh. It's very elaborate and has what would have been her birth date underneath my initial. I feel it often and it lifts my spirits sometimes. Last one that I'll share with you because there are many more. The tattoo has helped me a lot. Mine is on my ribs. It's the flower that corresponds to the month my baby would have been born. I know abortion was right for me even though it was the most difficult decision I ever made. This tribute, though, constantly reminds me that I can't waste this second chance. Do you still believe that abortive women don't know what they're doing? That the women who actually go in, not the women who walk into the crisis pregnancy centers and say, "Ah, oh, you know, I, I, I might need to get an abortion if I don't get the help that I need. No, I'm talking about the women who go through with it, who are absolutely determined to do this and have done it. Do you still believe that they don't know what they're doing? Do you believe that they're quote-unquote mentally deranged? Because I've spoken to pro-lifers who do believe that, that they're just, they've had a complete break with reality. They don't, know. they don't know. They don't know what they're doing to the point where they can't be held culpable under the law. I have read so many of these quotes. So many. And every time it gets me. You can't go through these and read what these women say and not just have your heart totally break. And don't read it every day, okay? That's my advice. You really should not be reading these every day. Because you might go insane. I mean, this really is about worldview. Like I've said so many times, is your worldview blind to the truth that's right in front of you? Does your worldview say that you have to believe something because national right to life Or some very popular pro-life leader has told you, no, 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 you can't abolish abortion. We need to do this incrementally because America just isn't ready yet. We need to continue to let children die because America isn't ready yet. And women don't know what they're doing. They've been taught that the baby is a polyp. They've been taught that it's just a clump of cells. Ben Shapiro says that. Did you know that? Smart guy, wicked smart, genius, probably genius level at least, right? He believes that and he believes that because I don't think that he has ever listened or read what abortive women actually say. Let them speak for themselves and then judge. So I'm sorry to end on such a a bum note. Actually, I'm not going to end on such a heavy note. I have a cute story. So, (laughs) my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, is almost three, and the past few days, when there's a fly in the house, because like we're in and outside of the house all the time, so flies get in. When there's a fly in the house, even if it's like like ten yards away from her, like way across the house, and she sees it, she she freaked out, like, at least three times. Freaked out that there's a fly in the house. Even though flies are, like, the least harmless, least scary bug that there is, in my opinion, besides, like, fruit flies. Okay? <clears throat> Freaking out. And it's, it's really kind of silly because she makes this sound like she's constipated. Like, when she's really, really concerned and really worried. It's really, really funny. It's adorable. But yesterday, so she wanted goldfish, right? So I I gave her some goldfish in one of her, like, little tiny play, um, like, kitchen pots that she likes to eat snacks out of. So I gave her that. But then she decided she didn't want it in that particular pot. She wanted to move it to another pot. So she goes to do that, and she has her little pot sitting next to the colander that's holding her goldfish. And she comes over to me, and I'm working, and she, like, taps me on the arm. She's like, Mom, 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 there's a bug in my bowl. There's a bug in my bowl. Like not freaking out or anything. Not running, screaming. Just, oh mom, there's a bug in my bowl. And I didn't really believe her. I thought she must be like looking at like just some like piece, like a burnt goldfish or something like that. No, no, no. I go over there and there's a spider in that pot. There's a spider. But Ellie's just like, mom, there's a bug in my bowl. It's a spider. Kids are hilarious. They're they're. She's so scared of, of house flies. But a spider's just like, ah, oh, that's kind of a nuisance. Okay. Anyway, all right. Again, you can leave me a voicemail at 323-999-1802. I do like to feature listener comments on the podcast, so please don't be shy. You can ask me a question or share your thoughts on you know, any of the things that we've talked about today. And you can also follow the, the podcast, of course, on Twitter and Instagram at 180casts. And please, hey, don't hesitate to give a review on iTunes if you like it. I'm actually going to be doing a book giveaway soon for um, reviews. For you know, every five reviews, I'm going to be giving away a book. So stay tuned for more details on that. And of course, you can also follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Executive produced by Kevin McCullough, music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson.